Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, if you were uh, here with us last week, we established that each of us has a born identity. We are each of us treasured children of the Most High God, that we have unfathomable, immeasurable value conferred upon us. But now as his children, what is God looking for in us? What does God want to see in his children? Well, of course, the longer-term answers are scattered throughout the Bible. He wants us to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. He wants to see the fruit of having the Holy Spirit in our lives come forth in who we are, in our character, and what we do. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those. But even by calling it fruit, there's something inferred there. Here's another way of looking at it. Imagine that you are a parent. For some of you, that's not so hard to imagine. For others, maybe a bit of a stretch. In any of these characteristics we've just listed, what one thing do we like to see that applies to them all? All of those things we've talked about. And what one thing concerns us if we don't see evidence of it? It's growth. It's growth, isn't that true? Don't we look for signs in, in our kids that they're growing spiritually, emotionally, physically? Doesn't it give us pleasure to see that and frankly alarm if we don't? There are a few things that we're drawn to in this life more than growth. We were made to grow and we love to be around growth. We plant gardens, we, we walk through parks, we wait in the spring for the first bits of green. We, we're gonna keep on waiting this spring for the first bits of green to show up. We celebrate when it does. Think about the excitement of parents at their child's first word. Yesterday it was cry or babble. Today she has joined the ranks of the talkers and her parents are so excited until they realize there's no off switch. Think of the excitement of the leaders of a company that is expanding. It's on target. It's reaching its mission. It's giving vocational opportunities to men and women who yesterday perhaps didn't have any. It's exciting to be around growth. Think of the excitement of a 16-year-old who just got their driver's license. Yesterday they were just pedestrians. Today they're a danger to everyone they know. Then on the other hand, there are few sadder things than stagnation. We don't even really like the word. I'm not drawn to go fishing on the Dead Sea. Who wants to sail a boat into the doldrums? It might just be me, but the prospect of visiting Mosquito Grizzly Bear's Head Lean Man Saskatchewan doesn't thrill me. It's an actual town. I work with a girl who moved to North Carolina. She's living right next to something called the Great Dismal Swamp. Can't wait to go there. How about you? Think of a marriage that was entered into with the hopes and dreams of, of all that was before them, but it plateaus and, and affections cool and the dreams fade. Or picture someone who spends their time starting at, staring sorry, at their phone or sitting in front of a television set, watching sports or sitcoms or even worse, soaps. There was a time in their life when they were all fired up with bright plans for the future and strong yearnings to make a mark in this world, but something changed. I think just about everybody would say 
I would like to take the path that leads to growth. I want to make a difference in my life. I don't want to waste this one and only precious life that's been given to me. Life is way too short. I want to take the path that will honor God and build my heart and develop my character and serve the world. I want to grow. I think about everybody hearing this would say that. And I know this for sure. God wants us to grow. Language about growth and the imagery surrounding growth is woven in and throughout the scriptures all the way through. Paul wrote, speaking the truth in love, we must in every way, every way, grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. We all have got to grow in every way as growth is determined by the life and teaching of Jesus. So here's the obvious question, folks. If growth is wonderful and stagnation is a tragedy and we all want to grow and God wants us to grow, the obvious question is, how come we're not a world full of people that are just growing? How come we're not just all bundles of development and progression and change? How come our minds are not getting keener and thoughts more immersed in scripture? How come our gifts and abilities aren't getting more polished and advanced and the rough edges getting smoothed away and our sinful habits becoming defeated and set aside on a regular basis? Why aren't more people experiencing life-changing growth just as a matter of course? Well, today I would like to clear up some of the confusion and darkness surrounding the subject of spiritual growth. I would like to differentiate between fact and fiction, between truth and error, and I'm going to use it in a sort of a way of looking at it between myth and reality. And the first myth is that growth is about how many. It's not about how many. It's not about how many meetings you attend at church. It's not about how many verses you memorize from the Bible. It's not how many minutes you spend in your devotions. It's not about how many Christian books you read this past year. It's not a matter of quantity. Growth is a matter of quality. It's how much closer am I to God than I was at this time last year. It's about how much more I love my wife and my children. It's about how much my character is being changed by God's power. See, Jesus didn't say, I came to give you more things to do in your life. He said, I came to give you an abundant life, a new quality of life. Another myth is that spiritual growth is a monumental task, a virtually impossible thing to achieve. But that's not true. Spiritual growth is not impossible. I know that from time to time we feel like God's standards are just too high, that people's expectations are unrealistic, that sometimes it seems like everyone around us is doing famously and we're the only ones struggling. Perhaps you've given up on growing spiritually. You tried for a while and you felt like it fouled up on you somewhere. You, ki- you licked your wounds, you got up, you tried again, you fouled up again, you licked your wounds, you did that scenario a half a dozen times, and now you're playing it smart. Now you're saying, I'm just going to shoot for the bare minimum here. I'll put in an hour and a half on a Sunday. I'll say some catch-all prayers to God. I'll try to keep my nose clean morally. And if I have pocket change, I'll even put it in the offering basket when I pass by it. Friends, if I'm describing you, listen to me. Spiritual growth may not be easy, but it's not impossible. 
It only appears monumental because God never expected you to do it on your own. God promises in a dozen different places in the Bible that if you demonstrate a sincere desire to grow spiritually, if you have a want to kind of factor in your spiritual life, and then you take a single step, just a single step in the direction of spiritual growth, God will come alongside of you and will lock arms with you and will give you the enabling power to continue walking towards spiritual maturity one step at a time. Leonard Ravenhill, an English author in the last century and an evangelist, tells about a group of tourists visiting a picturesque village in England who walk by an old man sitting beside a fence. In a rather patronizing way, one tourist asked, (laughs) I don't suppose any great men were born in this village. The old man replied, nope, only babies. It's a profound answer, isn't it? Growth takes time. No one is cheering for your continued spiritual growth more than God is. No one is doing more behind the scenes to help you grow than God is doing, even right now today. Some of us may need to stop viewing God as the one who callously sets up impossible standards and then kind of puts his thumb down on us when we fall short. That is not a biblical picture of who God is and how he operates. That view is the result of a disinformation campaign by Satan himself. Rather, we must view God as he's portrayed in the Bible. In the Bible, God is portrayed as a powerful, loving, tender father who has great plans for his treasured children. Therefore, he longs to see them grow up. Another myth I want to expose is kind of an antithesis to the last one. It's the myth that spiritual growth is Well, casual, in effect that it's easy, that it happens effortlessly, that it's just a done deal as soon as you make a decision to follow Christ, that you're just going to fly and soar like an eagle. We've become obsessed with comfort. Somewhere along the line, we settled for comfort and sacrificed our dreams of making a difference. And if we're not careful, our life becomes a story of unrealized potential because there's absolutely nothing casual or comfortable about growth. Maybe that's why churches used to have wooden benches. They knew comfort in the church was dangerous. Joke. Growth always requires effort, and growth often hurts. Just know that. Growth of any kind requires intentionality. It requires effort. It requires the big C commitment. It requires persistence. Just think about it. Whether it's practicing scales on the keyboard when you'd rather quit, or hitting the books as a student when you'd rather go outside and play, or entering a difficult conversation that you'd rather avoid. To grow is always the more costly choice. Spiritual growth often requires parting with something that has had a grip on us in the past, something that draws our attention and affection away from God. Let me tell you that when you let go of something or someone you love in order to keep growing spiritually, it's not an easy task. It's agonizing. I talked to a man once whose job had such a grip on him, he was in the financial sector, whose job had such a grip on him that he finally realized that he could not be a godly husband to his wife or a godly father to his children 
and, and or participate in the church because he was now at the stage where his work was asking about 100 hours a week of him. One day this, week, this man walked in to his boss and he said, I'm going to leave this job because I can't grow spiritually like this. The boss looked at him, actually laughed at him and said, you're not going to part with the salary you're getting for your faith, which is exactly what the man did. And I wish I could tell you that he walked into an equally high-paying job with a lot less hours the next day, but he didn't. His net worth financially went down, but he had to make that choice to grow. He was dying spiritually. He recognized that. And now his net worth spiritually is on the way up. Excuse me. <clears throat> Another, <clears throat> excuse me. Another reason why spiritual growth is not casual is because it always involves change. And I'm not just talking about surface level kinds of change, just kind of regular kind of little things that we give up. I'm talking about deep spiritual growth that involves deep inner kinds of change that require the letting go of long established patterns in your life. The kind of change that forces you to rethink lifelong values and tightly held convictions. You know, from that point of view, I have looked at this past year as being a godsend to us. That it's actually caused us, I think practically every one of us, through all the storms of this past year, are, have we looked at our values? I think it's caused us to look at our lifelong values and our tightly held convictions. What really is important? Spiritual growth often requires great courage. Deeper levels of humility than you have ever known. Higher levels of truth-telling in your heart. Tons of effort, and none of that is easy. It often requires leaps of faith, which make the timid among us very nervous. Spiritual growth, you see, is not easy. And that's why whenever a person tells me that they are going to stay away from Christianity because it's for the weak, my dad said this to me. Those who tell me that they're staying away from Christianity because it's just a crutch for the weak, for spineless people, my temperature starts to rise because everyone who has paid the price to grow will tell you that advancing spiritually is not for the feeble-hearted. Facing sin requires courage. Parting with something you love, walking away from a career, downward mobility, changing your schedule and your patterns of life in order to honor God, that takes lion-hearted kind of courage. It's not for weak people. Spiritual growth will never be casual, but it will always be worth it. I don't know who started the myth that spiritual growth is easy, but it has never been easy for me, never. And it has never been easy for someone like Paul. Listen to what the apostle wrote. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. There is another law at work within me that is waging war with my mind. And finally he says, wretched man that I am, who is going to set me free from the war that rages? He's saying there's a battle being fought between the old value system in my life and which was like the law of the jungle, the law of the world, and the new value system in my life, the law of the Lord, the law of love, the law of righteousness. Paul's saying, it's just not an easy battle. 
The Bible says that the evil one is willing to do everything in his power to curtail and frustrate your spiritual progress. Paul reminds us that we're not just battling self-will here or bad habits, we're battling the very forces of evil in this task. So when you feel a sense of opposition to your efforts to grow, don't be surprised. You're a target of the enemy who doesn't want you to make progress because if you grow spiritually, God is going to entrust you with some spiritual responsibility and you're going to become a difference maker and the enemy doesn't want that. Another myth about spiritual growth is that spiritual growth happens in a uniform, universal way. By that I mean that we all will grow exactly the same way and at exactly the same rate. Oh, <laughs> if it were only that easy. Wouldn't it be the cat's meow? That's for you, Stefan. Wouldn't it be the cat's meow if I could say, read these books, take this seminar, do these hours of Christian service and be in a cell group for sure and you will just automatically become a spiritual adult. Well, it's a wonderful fantasy. It's just not reality. It doesn't work that way. You know, by just looking around you right now, the, the people around you are wired differently than you are. They have different temperaments, different personalities, different experiences, and they're in different stages of their life, perhaps. So it only stands to reason that people will probably grow in different ways, at different rates, and in different styles. There may be no surefire formula for spiritual growth, but... But there are a few basics, and let's not forget them. We all need biblical input. We all need to pray. Don't forget the prayer meeting this Wednesday. We all need a certain amount of fellowship. But in the actual expression of how that works out for you, there is enormous potential for variety here. God says in his word in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation, own salvation, in fear and trembling. Part of what that command means is that you have to figure out on the basis of who you are how you can best grow. You've got to get involved with the Holy Spirit's guidance, some trial and error ex experimentation perhaps, over a long enough period to determine what eventually works. How is it that you grow authentically and consistently? Start at the point of asking God like we did last week. God, who did you make me to be? How did you wire me up? Help me understand my uniqueness and then help me understand how I can put some structures, some activities, some strategies, some disciplines, some relationships, some patterns into an equation that really works well for me that I might grow. Friends, let's make this the year to find out the year that we grow together, the year we're going to deepen our roots, the, the year we're going to go deep into, into the word, we're going to put our whole will and effort behind this, and we're going to mean it on a deeper level than we ever have before. In order to do that, you've got to take some risks. You've got to commit yourself to discovering the right combination of growth disciplines that work well in your life and get them integrated so that they're not just something you think about, they're actually something you do on a regular basis. Make it a regular pattern in your life. Do you have a regular pattern in your life that's causing you to grow? Need I need to, do I need to tell you that growing feels great? It's just a wonderful feeling to be more aware of the presence of God today than you were yesterday. Do you know how fantastic it feels to sense his power in your life as you go through your day? 
to feel it more than you did three months ago? Which brings us to the fifth and final myth, the myth that spiritual growth is optional. There are really two myths here, and this is for the old people, two myths, two myths in one. You'd have to go back to really old commercials to get that one. The first involves the mistaken belief that as far as eternal life is concerned, heaven and for that matter, a fulfilling life here on earth goes, having a relationship with Jesus is strictly optional. But the Bible says that exercising that option is the most pivotal thing, the most pivotal decision that you will ever make in your life. You see, each of us was made by God We were made for God, and until we understand that that is who we are, life will never make sense. You were made to have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the only way you're ever going to grow to spiritual maturity. Many people will try anything except that. They'll try rules, they'll try regulations, they'll try rituals, they'll even just try the small r religion. But God says, no, it's a relationship. You don't grow spiritually by keeping rules. You only grow by developing a relationship with Christ. And then comes the second mistake. Some make a decision to follow Jesus and almost immediately think their job is done. That spiritual growth from that point on is strictly optional. Sometimes I wonder how this myth crept into the Christian community, but it has. Large segments of the Christian community have spent years in a condition of spiritual stagnation without the least bit of concern about growing. Sometimes I sense long, dramatic yawns and stretches coming from these kinds of people, followed by a, uh, yeah, maybe I will, Mm, maybe I won't. That attitude pertaining to the possibility of personal spiritual advancement is just wrong. If I want to stay spiritually comatose for the rest of my life, I guess that's my call. If I get a burst of spiritual energy and decide to take a step of spiritual growth, hey, come on, that's my call. Either way, it's my decision, isn't it? Spiritual growth is strictly optional. Friends, on the human side of the equation, it's very easy to view spiritual growth as just an option you may or you may not want to pursue. But believe me, on heaven's side, on heaven's side of the equation, God has a decidedly different view on the matter. From God's perspective, spiritual growth is certainly not optional. It's expected. He expects that in response to his love, in response to his sacrifice, in response to his forgiveness, in response to his provision, in response to his protection, in response to his adoption of you, that you will offer yourself back to him. He expects that you would choose to do that over dissatisfaction and disillusionment and, frankly, death. God views spiritual growth as being natural and anything other than that, unnatural. From God's perspective, there is something dreadfully wrong with a comatose Christian, with a no-growth Christian. Just as parents of young babies chart the weight and the height and the reactions of their young children to make sure they're growing properly, God monitors the development of each of his treasured children very carefully. 
fully expectant that they will be growing steadily and consistently. And when God observes children who've stopped growing, children who get stuck in a stage that they should have gone and grown right through, God gets very, very concerned. The Apostle Paul reflects his concern in writing to the church at Corinth. And I'm going to paraphrase it now. Paul says, when all of you find first became believers, when you first bowed, when you first repented of your sin, when you first turned to Christ for forgiveness, when you were born again, when you were first, at that point in time, you were spiritual infants. It was understandable then that you had to start at infancy. I taught you as I would teach infants, therefore. I gave you spiritual milk. He says, I cut you a lot of slack then. I knew you would stumble and fall. That's just part of being a baby. It was all understandable in those early days. But, he says, for those of you who have been believers for some time, you should have grown some by now. You're still babies. Several years later, this isn't right. It's not healthy. It's not God's design for you. You should have grown at least into adolescence. Some should have reached adulthood by now. The fact that you're still spiritual infants means something is dreadfully wrong here. The maturation process was not happening in the church at Corinth. And what was worse, nobody in the church even thought anything was wrong, didn't notice anything was missing. People had just come to expect infancy to tolerate spiritual immaturity. And God doesn't view it that way at all. He views spiritual growth as a process that must happen. In fact, God has gone to enormous lengths to make sure that his children have everything they need in order to grow. They have, as we pray for, daily bread. He provides the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit who does the inside job, tugging us to grow. Perhaps you felt those tugs saying, come on now, take a step, sign up for that, go to that, do that. The question I want to ask you is where is God calling you to grow and what are you doing about it? You can follow the path of least resistance, the path of comfort. You can follow that right into the grave. But what a mountain of regret you will have. I want to reflect with you on some personal choices, some forks in the road, if you will, that we come to as it relates to stagnation or to growth. As we walk through them, I want to talk to you about some folks in the Bible that face those same choices. The first is whether we will go through life open or opaque. In an effort to grow, are we willing to be open to the truth about ourselves? Are we willing to really look in the mirror like we talked about last week? Or do we put up this screen around us that no one can see through? It's kind of opaque and we pretend inside this little bubble that everything is fine in our lethargic life. There's a kind of pattern about us, you see. As long as the truth about me is positive, I'm real open to it. I'll let somebody tell me good things about me as long as they have breath to do so. But I don't seek out the truth when it's corrective. And that's the truth we all need most of all. Too often I want the hard truth about me softened and fuzzied. A man received a phone call from his wife just as she was about to fly home from Europe. She asked him, how's my cat? He said, dead. She said, honey, don't be so blunt. 
Why didn't you break the news slowly? You've ruined my whole trip. What do you mean, he asked her. Well, you could have told me he was on the roof and that he had a fall. And then when I called from Paris, you could have said, well, he's acting kind of sluggish, I'm not sure. And then when I called from London, you could have said, he's really not well at all, he's sick. And then when I called from New York, you could have said, he's at the vet now, this is serious. And then when I got home, you could have said, I'm sorry, honey, he died. The guy just on the phone to his wife says, well, sorry, he said, I'll really try and do better the next time. Okay, she said. How's mom? She's on the roof. <laughs> See, I think a fair number of us kind of want the truth about ourselves softened, don't we? Don't just give it to me like that. Can't you soften it? Can't you make me feel better? Can't you just kind of lay it out so it doesn't seem so, so blunt? Proverbs 27, 6 has a profound truth. The writer says this, the kisses of an enemy may be profuse, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Man, you could just think about that all day, couldn't you? There are people who will tell me only what I want to hear. The metaphor of profuse kisses. They would just lay those lovely things on me over and over and over. But they are, in fact, my enemies because they will keep me from growing. They will keep me from truth. A true fan, friend will speak, speak hard truth to me, things I don't want to hear, but they're the wounds that actually heal. Do you have anybody in your life like that? Are you open to that? A great example of this in Scripture is the greatest friend anybody could ever have, Jesus. Before he's crucified, he has gathered his disciples together, including Judas, and for the last time, he's there with all of his 12. Only he and Judas know what is about to happen. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, because he's the great truth teller, right? And he will always do that for us if we ask him. He will always tell us the truth. One of you is about to betray me, he says. As you might imagine, they're all very distressed about this. One by one, they look at each other, and they look at Jesus, and they, not me, it can't be me. Surely it's not me, Lord. One by one, all 11 kind of go through that process, and then there's Jesus and Judas left. They stand face to face. Judas now must choose. He could throw himself at Jesus' feet. He could acknowledge the truth that Jesus has spoken. He could just open up to his deceit, his resentment, his anger, his jealousy, his betrayal, whatever it is that's led up to this moment. There could be at this moment tears and repentance and honesty and, and all between them could have been solved and set right in that moment. Or Judas could hide the truth, cover up with a mask, slip out into the night, and with a hardened heart, betray the one true friend he has ever had. So Judas stands at this fork in the road, one way or the other. He holds his fate in his hand, in a sense, life or death. Jesus looks at him with infinite love, tenderness, and I'm sure a measure of sadness. Judas' heart is pounding, his mind is racing, his soul hangs in the balance, and then he hardens it and says, Surely not I, Lord. And eventually, in his despair and darkness, he takes his own life. He would not allow Jesus to speak the truth into his life. So I want to ask you now, because this is about you. This is about your life. Will you allow Jesus to speak the truth into your life? Some of you have been hiding and running, and there's a kind of hardness growing inside of you. 
For reasons of comfort and ease, perhaps, you've put off making a decision to follow strongly after God. There might be work involved, but you've chosen stagnation instead, and you know deep down that there is some rotting kind of taking place at a deep level. There's an aspect of your heart that's not right. There's an attitude that's off. There's a relationship where you have just been defiant in the face of what you know God wants you to do. And now the truth is being spoken into your life by Jesus himself. What are you going to do? Are you going to heal or are you going to harden? There's a second growth point that I think God has called. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> well, that got me. My apologies. <clears throat> I do not have the strongest voice. It's always a good thing that God is with me up here. <clears throat> There's a second, excuse me for that, I apologize. There's a second growth point that I think God is calling us to that has to do with taking responsibility. The first area of growth is being open to the truth about ourselves, saying, yeah, Lord, that's true. But then the second one is saying, I'm going to take responsibility for that. I'm not going to drift anymore. See, the choice is to embrace the responsibility of spiritual growth or to evade it at all costs. <clears throat> See, we have this weird tendency, all of us, when it comes to problems. We hope that they'll get tired of troubling us and just fade away, that we can outweigh them. But they have a way of not doing that, don't they? The human capacity to evade responsibility goes all the way back to the beginning. After Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, God comes to the garden to be with them and says to Adam, you ate the forbidden fruit? Why did you disobey me? And you wait for Adam to man up here and take the responsibility. What's the first man's response? And likely been many of ours since. Ah, it's this impetuous woman you gave me. It's her fault. People are genius at evading responsibility. We come up with the most ingenious ways to say, but I'm not responsible for this. These are actual statements found on insurance forms where car drivers attempt to summarize the details of the accident and get themselves off the hook. <clears throat> and I quote, as I approached the intersection, a sign suddenly appeared in a place where no stop sign had ever appeared before. I was unable to stop in time to avoid the accident. Another one. The pedestrian had no idea which direction to run, so I ran over him. You can kind of picture that one happening, can't you? And here's my all-time favorite. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> Sooner or later, each of us comes to these forks in the road. An opportunity for growth or to just go and live in lethargy. A classic example of this in the Bible is a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and in Jesus' day, they were despised, they were spit upon, they were universally hated and almost universally dishonest. There's a record, actually, of one city in the first century actually erecting a statue to an honest tax collector because it was such a rare thing. They were despised. They were hated by the Jews, considered to be traitors because not only were they collecting taxes from their own people to give to the Roman government, but they were profiting from it. Whatever extra they could get, they, get, they got to keep. 
Zacchaeus' whole life was built around greed and extortion and hostility towards his own people. Then he hears that this guy named Jesus is coming through, and Jesus has this strange reputation of having gone to parties with tax collectors and, and other people who were despised. Zacchaeus has to see this guy, but from a distance. He climbs a sycamore tree to be able to see better from a distance so as to hide from all the people because life is not easy when you're a tax collector. Then Jesus comes, only something happens that Zacchaeus didn't really bargain for. Instead of just getting to see Jesus from a distance, walking by, Jesus walks right up to his tree and looks up at him. Just when I didn't want to be noticed. Just when I didn't want Jesus to point out something about me, right? Then Jesus looks up at him, and something happens that Zacchaeus didn't really bargain for. The whole crowd, as you can imagine, is all drawn to this hated weasel who they now see has climbed up this tree, this tax collector up a tree. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Zacchaeus comes to a fork in the road. Do I go down amongst all those people who hate me? What's he going to do to me? This is not, what am I going to do? Will he own up to his greed? Will he own up to his corruption? Will he acknowledge his sin? Will he fall on his knees and repent? Or will he do the Judas thing? He comes down. He says to Jesus, this day I will pay back anybody what I owe them. I will pay back four times what I owe them. He didn't have to do that. I'm going to sell half of everything I own and give the money to the poor as well. Again, he didn't have to do that. That day he began to grow a generous heart. That day he began to be set free from the greed and corruption that would have destroyed him. Imagine Zacchaeus getting to the end of his life whenever that happened, looking back and saying to himself, I think of what might have happened if I'd stayed up in the tree, if I'd kept going down that path all about piling up as much money as I could and forgetting my own people, being disloyal and traitorous and greedy and corrupt. I could have ended up a man of great wealth and success with no soul, no heart, and no hope. I'm so glad I gave all that stuff away. I'm so glad I went through the pain and embarrassment in front of all those people and confessed in front of them and acknowledged what I've been doing wrong. I'm so glad I got freed. I'm so glad that I followed Jesus. I'm so glad I owned my heart, my problem, my sin. See, we can choose to close our eyes and lay back in the lethargic life or we can fall on our knees before God and say, I want to take full responsibility, God, for where I need to grow and what I need to commit to to change with your help. See, each of us, none of us want to end up our life, look back with a mountain of regret. I don't want to look in the mirror and see a sullen heart, a resentful heart, a greedy heart, a deceitful heart. <clears throat> The third fork when it comes to growth has to do with the choice between selfless or selfish. This is real important because growth is not just about us, about me. A lot of stuff that gets written these days, especially in self-help literature, that makes it kind of sound like growth is just something for me. Growth is for my benefit. Growth is for me to feel good about myself. Self-help is about me being successful. But biblical growth, growth into Christ, as Paul talked about, is always growth so that I can give, so that I can serve. 
I believe in it, and I know what a difference it makes. I know what happens in a home where servanthood takes place. But there's a distinction we need to make here. See, I can serve when it serves my own interest. I can serve because I have a job to do, because I work at a church. But that's not being a servant. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When I choose to serve, that's just an occasional opportunity. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm in control. I choose who I serve, when I serve, when I stop, what the conditions must be. Don't we do that? Oh, I'm not sure I'll serve today. Eh, that's all right. If it's not acknowledged and doesn't get me anywhere, I can always quit. But being a servant is something kind of deep. It's who you are. Being a servant means I open myself up to the promptings of the Spirit whenever and wherever. I do a little random acts of service here, there, and everywhere. I do big acts of service when asked upon. I serve in secret as well as serving in when it gets noticed because I'm a servant. The question that I have to ask and you need to ask yourselves as well is, what have I done today that I didn't do for me? If I'm truly a servant, what have I done to give? Again, Jesus is the teacher on this one. His friends were real slow to get the servanthood thing, <clears throat> and that makes me have hope sometimes. So one day, knowing the human heart, Jesus gathered his friends. He took his robe off, he wrapped a towel around himself, he took a basin of water and that all-powerful, all-knowing Lord of the universe kneels down and washes the dirt off the feet of his followers. It's about the most humbling and demeaning thing that a servant could do in those days. And Jesus did it for them. When he was done, he stood up and said, this I have done to be an example for you, that you should do likewise. <clears throat> And eventually, when his life was over, they came to realize he'd been washing their feet his whole life long. He left heaven, was born in a manger, spent all of his ministry years just teaching people, serving them, healing people, giving, giving, and giving some more. Every moment of his life was an act of servanthood right up to the cross, where he served you and I like never has been witnessed before or since. They became so transformed by this that they devoted their lives to him. <clears throat> so how do we grow? How do we move into a life of growth? Well, in a sense, it's the same way spiritually as it is physically, by going into a life of training, watching what you eat, getting plenty of exercise. The Bible says we're to watch what spiritual things we eat. We're to start with the milk and move on to the meat of God's word. Digest it regularly, study it, read it, learn it, grow from it. The Bible says we're to get regular spiritual exercise by spending time with God, speaking, listening, so we will grow through the relationship that develops. And it also says that one of the best ways to grow is to exercise your gifts, talents, abilities, time, your resources that God has given you. He says that if you invest the effort in training, you will see growth in your life like never before, perhaps even more than you were ever able, even able to contain. It will spill out of you into others. God empowers the Bible to give us spiritual nutrition. That can make a difference in our lives and help us grow. 
He uses the church, those of each of us around us, to stimulate growth through its ministries, through its services as we serve one another. He uses people from time to time to come next to us, to mentor us, to encourage us along the path of spiritual growth. He intervenes and answers prayers in miraculous ways to encourage us to keep growing. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that growth happens today. Not yesterday or tomorrow, it's today. Today, no matter what age or stage of life you're at, growth matters today. When you get to the end of your life, however much time there is between now and then, when you get to the end, what do you want to look back on? What do you want to look back on? What would be your born legacy? You can look back on a lethargic life of comfort if you want. You can just consistently choose the path of least resistance, avoid hard truth, abdicate responsibility, sit back at a distance, climb a tree and look at a distance at what Jesus might be saying or doing, and try and remotely control your life. Just take the easy way out. You can wallow in the unrealized potential, unfulfilled longings, sluggish sinful patterns of behavior that never get confronted, that never get changed. No refining of abilities, wasted gifts that never get identified, nothing that gets used or makes a difference. You just wallow in stagnation with a boatload of regret. Deep, intimate, powerful conversations never took place. Great, bold prayers never got prayed. Exhilarating risks for God never taken. Sacrificial gifts to a desperately needy, needy world around us never given. You can do that if you want. Or you can decide life's too short to be wasted in stagnation. And someday, maybe tomorrow, maybe in many, many years, you can stand together with God and look back on your life and say, I didn't do it perfectly, but I did the best I could, God, with the help of your spirit. I chose this great adventure of growing, and I had a part in building your kingdom. Me, little old me, you partnered with me. I got to work with you in building your kingdom, changing the community around me, changing the world, making a difference. There's a fork in our lives, friends. Which will you take? I want to invite you now to answer that question, to kind of think about some of the answers to some of the questions that I put to you today. I want to give us just a chance here, a few moments of, of reflection to think about that. <clears throat> and as always, I'd encourage you to kind of write these down, uh, keep them with you, think about it, uh, ask them to each other as you go home from the service or as you walk around uh, the neighborhood today. What are you really eating spiritually? I mean, really. Where is God calling you to grow? And what are you doing about it? Ask God what structures, actions, disciplines, strategies, relationships, what's helping you grow or will help you grow. Write them down. Commit to doing them. Ask God in yourself, oh, am I choosing when it works for me to serve or am I a servant? And what have I done today that I didn't do just for me? Give you a moment. I believe God pays attention to our attitudes and our actions. And so I'm going to ask you, as a sign of your commitment to grow to Him, would you stand as we sing this last song in honor and in worship of Him? Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204 326 9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204 
326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.